Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. I want to spend a few minutes uh, to speak to you, and I'm going to do this again on Sunday, but I think it's really um, time for us to, to take some stock in who we are as believers with regard to what we face with what is technically known as, as COVID-9, which is the coronavirus um, reality, and I'm using that word very selectively, the reality of what this virus is. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter four said, be anxious for nothing. How many things, church? Nothing. Good, bad, indifferent, nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And then let the peace of God, which surpasses our human understanding. You see, our human understanding right now is saying, Man, we have a pandemic going on. There is no pandemic that is bigger than God. There is no thing that we face that he is not able. He's still El Shaddai, amen? He's our hero God. And so I think we need to keep this in focus as to who we are as believers and as Christians. Jesus himself speaking to the apostles in Matthew chapter 6, told them, don't worry about your life. And he went on to give a tremendous description of clothing and food and all of those things that are necessary and reminds us if God clothes the grass of the field, if he takes care of sparrows, are we of not more value than they? Amen? Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that? This is important for us to believe what we believe. Because if we just came tonight to a public gathering to discuss philosophy, then I would be the first to tell you, let's go home and not risk being here tonight. But we've come to worship the king. We've come to study the word, which is the word of life. We've come for a purpose and for a reason Our God is worthy of our worship, and his word to us is life. And so there's a reason we're gathering together tonight. This is not flippant. We didn't make the decision to continue to hold church uh, because we just want to test to see uh, whether we can withstand this onslaught of coronavirus. In 2 Timothy, Paul writing to a pastor, uh, his friend, His young understudy Timothy said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, amen, but of power and of a sound mind. That sound mind is interesting because it is indicating that our mind needs to be unrotted. It needs to be sound. It needs to be strong. It needs to be healthy. In other words, we need to think correctly about all things including things that may frighten some. 
And I mean no disrespect if you're here tonight and you're struggling with what seems to be this tremendously severe outbreak uh, that we're faced with daily, minute by minute in the media. I, I mean no disrespect to you for how you feel about it. But I'm here to tell you that our God is bigger than the virus that we call coronavirus. Amen? In Psalm 33, it says this in verse 10, for the Lord brings counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of peoples to no effect. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart are to all generations. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people that he has chosen as his own inheritance. And we have that inheritance in Christ. That's who we are. And while our government tries to figure out what to do about the coronavirus, I believe it is incumbent upon us to place our faith, our hope, and our trust, not in government, but in the Lord. He is still the king of heaven. He's not the president of a country. He isn't a political ruler. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is able and very up to the task as Solomon would write in Proverbs 19, listen to counsel, receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. And there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel shall stand. And so what I would say to you tonight is I myself personally and we as a staff consulting with doctors, attorneys, insurance people, and people of every shape, size, stripe, and color with regard to this problem have listened to counsel. And the counsel to a person was, don't panic. Now, why is that? Let me be very specific with you. You had a thousand times greater chance of being in a car accident on the way to church than catching the coronavirus just catching it. You had a thousand times greater chance. So let's not overblow what is obviously a problem and turn it into something it is not. This is not one of those things right now, currently, there's been exactly one person in Los Angeles County that has perished from the coronavirus. That person made a lengthy trip to South Korea, contracted it there, came here, and then passed away. So I, I'm telling you these things so you're not overly concerned that every single person you come across is perhaps a carrier of the coronavirus. That just simply isn't true. Now, should we be wise? Absolutely. Should we be prudent? Absolutely. Should we cancel church? Absolutely not. Amen? But we are going to make some changes. And those doctors have given us some very wise counsel. Some of these things you know, some of them you do not. But as we get through this time where there seems to be an increase in the rate of spread of this particular thing, this is still a flu. It is a very virulent flu. It can, especially in elderly or infirm, people with, that are immunocompromised, it can absolutely be serious, but it is a flu. It is not the bubonic plague. It is not cancer. It is not Ebola. It's not cholera. 
over half of the people who contracted it in China are completely fine. They've gone through the flu. They're out the other side of it. So I'm giving you these things, and they're being recorded right now so people can watch it online later. If, if you get this, chances are you're going to recover just fine, and you're going to have the flu. What we want to avoid, including here at church, is spreading it. So here's what we want you to do. If you or someone in your family is experiencing flu-like symptoms, that means you have a cough that is deep and pervasive, that means you have a fever. If it exceeds 101 or so, make sure that you please do not come to church. Stay home. Also check in with your doctor. You're going to find that your doctor, probably your medical plans, have set up now triage tents outside of most medical facilities, and you won't actually even be able to get into your medical facility. They're going to want to talk to you before you even get in. So your doctor may tell you that he'd like to video conference with you. Take him up on that. Take her up on that. Get some good, wise counsel about what to do regarding your particular flu-like symptoms. And here's the glorious thing. Does everybody know that we live stream every service? You can go on your phone. You can cast it to your television. You can grab yourself a computer and an HDMI cable and the adapter to go to your cable. You can plug it into your side of your TV, and you can get all of Calvary Chapel South Bay right there on the screen in your living room. So if you're ever homesick for any reason, you can still keep up with church. Please do that. We want you to be engaged. Worship the Lord. Go grab some elements of communion. Be in church even if you have to stay home. While you're here at church, we have put together an action, action plan that contains these steps. You're going to find hand sanitizer everywhere. Uh, we bought out as much as Costco had. And so there are literally, we, we could fill a pool with hand sanitizer right now. So uh, we have that everywhere. If you go to the restroom, please avail yourself of that antibiotic soap that's in there. Wash your hands, wash them vigorously. That means you rub them, guys. That means that you don't dunk them underneath it and pull it back out, done, wipe it on your pants. Actually wash your hands. Uh, if you have to sneeze or cough, please do so into your sleeve, um, do not cough into the air. That is how this virus is chiefly spread. It is airborne, so make sure that you respect the people around you. Uh, we're going to be doing regular disinfecting after every service in here. Every service, we will come through and wipe down the top of every pew because this particular virus lasts for up to three days on hard surfaces. It lasts just an hour or two in the air, maximum, but on hard surfaces, especially plastic and metal, uh, it can last a while. So we'll take care of sanitizing the church for you in a very, very meticulous fashion. We're not going to be encouraging you to greet one another with holy kisses, holy hugs, holy handshakes, or any other holy thing where you have to wholly hold somebody's hand, okay? Uh, we're going to try and keep that on the down low for a little bit uh, while we're getting through the worst part of this. Uh, we also want to encourage you to use as much space as we have here in the sanctuary, which tonight you have done all very nicely. Uh, the recommended space is about five or six feet. Uh, some of you are way too close. Now, if you know the people that you're with, then by all means, sit next to them. If it's somebody you don't know, if you want to take a little extra room, there are seats for 2,200 plus in this sanctuary. So by all means, spread out, get yourself a little extra room. Um, we do not know when we are going to get 
any type of directive from our government. Thus far, all things uh, regarding gathering are, man- are not mandatory. They're simply voluntary. And so we're going to continue to meet. Uh, if we have to use more of our overflow space, we will especially on our Sunday morning services. We're gonna have every seat available that we can and we'll have live streaming going on virtually everywhere. So you can come to any part of the church. That would be the fellowship hall, the NPR, the overflow, the cafe here in the main sanctuary. The last thing, which is probably the thing that you were wondering about because we normally do our offering right after that final worship song, uh, in order that we not have to pass the tithe bags, which those of you that normally attend here at Calvary Chapel South, but you know that those have a wooden handle on either side. That's a hard surface. So in order to keep you from having to touch that tithe bag, pass it to the person next to you, that could be a method of transmission. We are going to have our ushers standing at the back of the sanctuary along with our agape boxes, which are always there. And you can just simply drop your tithe in buckets. They'll be holding them. You don't need to touch them. Just drop it in the bucket and go on your way. So we'll make sure that we then take the responsibility of touching those envelopes and everything else and that you don't have to touch the bag or anything else like it. Now, why are we doing this? Uh, Because we really believe that we need to continue to worship the Lord. That we're we're not gonna give up worshiping the king simply because there's a virus going around. We're not gonna forsake, as Hebrews 10 reminds us, the gathering together of the saints, fellowshipping. And so we're gonna keep meeting. Uh, If you're one of those people that's concerned, by all means, watch online. We don't want you to feel bad about doing so. If it's something that frightens you and you can't get past it, then take advantage of the fact that we live stream every service. You can watch on Facebook. You can watch on our app. You can watch on your computer live stream. The bottom line, family, is that we are going to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Amen? We're not going to lean on our own understanding. Amen? Because that might come from fear from the media. But we are going to, in all of our ways, acknowledge him, just exactly as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, and know what comes after that, and he will direct our paths. Amen? So this is our plan for the near term. Uh, If we're forced by some measure to have to change it, or if there's a reason medically to do so, uh, we will. But we encourage you now to spread the word. Um, We're going to be meeting right here as we always meet. Amen? And so... Encourage each other, strengthen one another, lift up holy hands, and let's continue to do what we've always done, which is to honor the word of the Lord, gather together to be strengthened, especially in these times. There is no greater time for us to be gathering together as the church than a time of crisis, amen? Can you imagine that the early church facing the Roman onslaught is, well, you know, let's just not get together anymore. So we're going to gather together and worship the Lord. Amen? Amen. I want to give you a little announcement regarding our Sunday night services while we're doing this. Um, Some of you know, some of you have seen, some of you have actually met and talked with uh, my friend, Dr. James McDonald. Uh, He is going to be with us on Sunday nights. He's going to begin an eight-week series on the 22nd of this month. Uh, He's going to be sharing a a series of studies, a series of messages that he has been working on 
uh, while he's been away from the pulpit for the last 13 months from Romans 8 called 8 and 8. And the basis of that study is the power to change. It's about transformational truth. Um, We are blessed to have him. Probably some of you have heard things that you've heard. I'm gonna encourage you as your pastor to just simply come and hear the man and hear the word of the Lord and see if God doesn't work in his life and work in you while God works in his life. I believe the Lord wants to do a great work here in this church. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity uh, for us to come alongside of a brother, a family, and to minister to them and for them to minister minister to us. And so I encourage you, uh, starting on the 22nd, Sunday nights, uh, right here, Calvary Chapel, South Bay, 8 and 8, The Power to Change with Dr. James McDonald. Amen? Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. The Stump That Saves. I love this title. I had to come up with something catchy for it. The Stump That Saves. As we continue our journey here through the book of Isaiah, we've come to this incredible passage of Scripture where as we might think the Lord has an answer in the face of a tragedy. And we're not here by mistake in this chapter, family. This is a divine appointment for us. I again remind you that the chapter and verse designations were added, inserted by men, not by the Holy Spirit in order to make sure that we could find our place. And so you would need to look back to what we call chapter 10 to find the context here of what we call chapter 11. Because the Assyrian onslaught has happened, the children of Israel have been largely taken captive. The northern uh, 10 tribes that we call Israel at this time, or Ephraim, both of those names would fit, uh, have been taken captive. And the cedars of Lebanon, which used to cover both Mount Carmel and the southern foothills of what we today call Lebanon have been destroyed. They've been cut down. There's nothing but stumps. So the vision for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, is they're looking at these hillsides. And here comes Isaiah the prophet, and he begins to speak of a branch that comes out of a stump. Now, why is that important? If you've ever been in an area to where Uh, For instance, I I grew up in the avocado capital of the world. I was born in Escondido, California, uh, where where every single grove was a grove that was quite old at the time. And very often when the trees stopped producing, they would cut the trees almost down uh, and they would allow the stump to stay. And then out of that stump would come exactly what is going to be referenced here, a netzer, a branch, a shoot, Uh, the remnant of the rootstock of this old tree that would then become a new tree. And very often that would be cut off. It would then be grafted into the top of the stump and out of the stump would become this beautiful, new, fruitful tree. That is the picture that we have as we begin here in Isaiah chapter 11. And so would you pray with me? And we'll pick up here in verse one. Father, we have come to praise you, to worship you, to honor you, and Lord, to study your word. And so as we open our hearts and minds to receive, would you fill us with gladness, Lord? Help us to receive your word 
uh, engrafted to our heart, Lord, as this stump would have this branch grafted into it, as it would just pop out of it, Lord. Would we be found in you, fruitful and growing, blossoming for the king and for his kingdom? We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse one, Isaiah 11, and there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And so obviously this is a clearly messianic passage. All of you know exactly who Jesse is. Amen? He's the father of the great King David, is he not? He's also in the the line of a couple of people you probably also know. Uh, You might know him as mom and dad for Jesus. Amen? Both Mary and Joseph come from the lineage of Jesse. And so as we look at this, it's looking forward to a time when the Messiah would be revealed. Uh, And we see this dramatic contrast, the nation of Assyria in chapter 10, God uses them to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, It's going to collapse. Assyria is this tool in God's hand. And as as Isaiah is writing this in in, uh, 686 BC, as he looks out at these dead trees, it does indeed look as though the acts of divine judgment has come against the nation Israel. There's nothing, everywhere they look, there's stumps. Everywhere the, the Jewish people would look, it's like our time is almost over. There would be no hope in their flesh. There would only be hope in the stumps. And it is from that stump that the Messiah is gonna come. The stump of Jesse, if you will. And so the first thing we see in this passage is the revealing of the Messiah. Notice in verse one, a shoot will spring up out of that stem or that stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots, and it will bear fruit. You see, the children of Israel were not fruitful. And in fact, they were idolatrous. They were wandering and doing virtually anything and everything that they could do to to make the Lord upset with them. And as they they begin to see what God has allowed in their life, much like I've had people ask me, you know, well, I was on Pastor's Perspective this week on Tuesday, and you know, one of the questions we had is, is the, you know, is this virus a judgment from the Lord? I don't know if it is or it isn't. It could be, I suppose. But the fact of the matter is, is that God is one day going to come back to this earth. Jesus is going to come again, and he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's coming with a sharp sword that's coming out of his mouth to deal with mankind's sinfulness once and for all. And so the the children of Israel were looking at this time going, man, we, we deserve what we get here. We've sinned against the Lord. We haven't kept his commands. We've done exactly what he told us not to do. We followed after the false gods. You know, everybody in this particular region is serving, 
you know, on, on Saturday, they're, they're going to synagogue, and on Monday, they're over worship, worshiping Ashtaroth. And so in some ways, it, it does kind of parallel the experience of the church in America. We have a lot of Sunday-only Christians. They go to church on Sunday, they, they do their religious duty, and then Monday morning, they're back to doing exactly what they've always done, which is to serve and please themselves. And so there is a lesson here about what brings the judgment of the Lord. And in that sense, it was being unfaithful to the Lord himself. And so as this stump is now left, there's just a tiny little bit of life in it. And it's the weirdest thing. If you ever cut down a tree, especially one that's deciduous, one that has leaves and not needles, normally a pine tree, a conifer, if you cut it down, it's probably going to be completely dead. But a tree that has leaves, if there's any life left in it, it will do everything it can to produce at least a shoot, maybe a leaf or two, and a new limb. And so here comes this new, tiny, what seems to be insignificant, almost exceedingly small branch that's going to be left of Jesse. David's name had fallen to the level of almost insignificance. There's nothing left, basically, but the root of David by this time. And in fact, during that time, this is, this is exactly, uh, when, when you look at the history of the Jewish people, um, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, you, you don't even have Jewish people ruling over the Jewish people. You've got an Idumean named Herod the Great, a man who's half Jewish and half Edomite. And, and so when you look at this, there's just a little bit of life left there. But that royalty runs through the veins of both Joseph and Mary, they are in the lineage of, Jay, of, of David in that sense. And Joseph wasn't a king, he was a carpenter, amen? And so Isaiah's looking forward to the time when Messiah would come. There's going to be just a little bit of life left there. A little bit of the root of Jesse left in Mary as well. And so Isaiah sees forward to that time. We'll also see the same picture when we get to the 53rd chapter of this amazing book. That, that shoot of the Redeemer the, that the, the Syrians thought they completely wiped out. He's going to be the one that Isaiah will say, there was nothing about him that we should desire him. Despised even. You remember when Jesus was young? We just covered this not long ago in our study in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus was young, everybody's looking at him like, seriously, him? That, that's the guy that you think is Messiah? That's the king of kings? That's the Lord of lords? He's a carpenter's son. Are you nuts? But he proved everybody wrong, didn't he? And so God, in order for us to understand this, begins the equipping of this Messiah right here in the book of Isaiah. We see what the Messiah is going to be equipped with. Notice what it says. He's going to have the fullness of something that one day you and I are going to experience, and that's the fullness of the work of the Spirit. Anybody in here figured out pretty quickly in, in your walk with the Lord that you still need to be filled with the Spirit on a daily basis because you don't have the fullness of the Spirit? You, you have some of it, 
and you were indwelt by the Spirit, but there's a reason that we're encouraged, therefore, to walk in the Spirit so we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's a reason that we're to desire the full work of the Spirit in our life because that's actually what Jesus has. Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit. God, of course, is Spirit in the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, and God himself is also in the full possession of the Spirit. But it says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So this one that comes out of the stump of Jesse, who's a little tiny shoot that nobody can see, seems insignificant, is actually going to be fully God. Completely God. He's going to be the one that chapter 9 told us is the child that would be born and the son that would be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be the possessor of full wisdom and counsel and omnipotence. He'll be the father of eternity. He's going to be the total prince of peace, that guy. That's the one that's in view here. There's only one person, there's only ever been one person on the face of this earth that was at the full disposal of the Spirit's work, and that was Jesus. That's the only human being, the only one born of man, because Jesus was fully man, amen? And yet also fully God. And so about him, this passage says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Also the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. In other words, the perfect indwelling of our humanity by the Spirit of God. I don't have that. Jesus did ministry the way that the prophets did ministry. It was not by power. It was not by might. It was by the Spirit of the Lord. That's for sure. But, but Jesus himself had the fullness of the Spirit. And it makes him different than you and I. Amen? It makes him different than me. Maybe it doesn't make him different than you. It makes him different than me. I do not have the fullness of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Still in me, there's some flesh. And every once in a while, the flesh and the spirit get to rustle around a little bit. I have to admit, as I'm taking phone calls and listening to people's complaints and things today about you know, why we were not doing this versus that, I had, I had the full gamut. On one side, I had the people that said, you know, we should, we should absolutely, you know, just pretend that this virus doesn't exist. And on the other side, I, I had the people that said, well, if you let people come to church, you might as well put a gun to their head. Both sides, coming from the same people that love the Lord. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, where's the spirit in all this? Where's the spirit at work in this? Because you know what? I really believe this person who thinks that we're all gonna die from the coronavirus actually loves Jesus. But see, their problem is they have a little bit of a lack of faith that God actually is who he says he is. It's been appointed unto man one time to die and then judgment, you're not leaving this earth before Jesus says it's time, period. So for the child of God, we don't walk around in fear going, well, I hope you know, I'm gonna get this and get that. That's just not the case for the child of God. On the other hand, we're supposed to also exercise wisdom, amen? We're supposed to, this thing in your head called a brain, God gave you that for a reason and you're supposed to use that. You're supposed to actually think and reason, God expects you to do that. And so on one hand, you have the people that lean towards you know, a, little, a little bit of overzealousness with their thinking. And on the other hand, you have people who are just kind of almost oblivious to the spiritual side of this. And that's other people aren't there yet. 
And so Jesus wouldn't have made that mistake. Jesus, were he here, would have made a perfect decision about what to do with church. Now, Pastor Jeff is doing the best he can. Pastor Jeff has sought counsel. Pastor Jeff has sought the spirit of the Lord. Pastor Jeff has prayed endlessly. Pastor Jeff has read the scriptures. Pastor Jeff has done what Pastor Jeff can do. But Pastor Jeff still needs the work of the spirit every once in a while. I was like, mm, probably should have prayed about that a little longer. Not Jesus. He's going to be perfect in the work of the Spirit. And in that, you see the kingdom excellence of the Messiah. This is the incredible part of this. Notice what it says. When is this going to be fulfilled? When his characteristics reign on this earth. That's when this is actually going to happen. When, when, and that happens when you believe. Amen? Amen. When you believe, there's a sense that a little bit of the kingdom is walking where you walk and talking what you talk and doing what you do. Not fully, but the Spirit is in you. So a little bit of the Spirit is in this world. That's why it's so important that the church do what the church should do, which is to be about the Father's business. Amen? Because we actually are indwelt by the Spirit, actually do hear from the Lord, and actually have a purpose on this earth that's eternal. And so... Jesus, the Messiah, is going to have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's going to have that delight of the fear of the Lord. He's going to be superhuman in his righteousness. Regular human beings are not superhuman in their righteousness. Amen? He, he's not going to conduct his government by popularity polls. Amen? Now, I'm going to share something with you right now. I pray that you don't hate on me. Can I tell you that a vast majority of the decisions that are being made right now in our country have nothing to do with the COVID-9 virus? They have to do with insurance actuaries. They have to do with political expedience. They have to do with people trying to decide who's going to get sued if something goes bad. It's not the wisdom of the Lord. People are trying to figure out where the liability is going to go, and they're making a lot of the decisions that are being made right now, not on the danger of the virus. Let's be honest, church. More than 20,000 people die every year from a flu virus. So this one is no different than that. We've had no more deaths. We've actually had less. So the Spirit of the Lord comes upon somebody, they're going to make a decision in righteousness. Not human rightness. Not because they consulted an insurance actuary. Not because they looked at the limits of their liability. Can you imagine the poor, the, the, the young people right now that their entire high school basketball career, their entire college career, they, they play eight years of basketball to make it to the NCAA tournament and they cancel the tournament, not because there's a tremendous danger. They could, have, they could have played the games. Maybe there weren't people in the stands, but they could have played the games, but because somebody is actually concerned that they're going to get sued. I think Jesus could have sorted that stuff out and figured out a way to have March Madness, amen? Now, I don't know how he would have done it, but I think he could have figured it out. He would have done it in perfect righteousness because right now we're just looking at one side of the equation and that's primarily money. A lot of these decisions are being made based on who might possibly get sued. Now you may be saying, I don't know about that. 
look at the world around you, then look at the truth, and the truth of the matter is, this is the flu bug. The dangerous one. There's no more dangerous than all of the flu bugs that we've gotten through before. And have you ever seen the stock market crash because of a flu bug? I haven't. I've been around a while. So we need the spirit of the Lord to sort through these things. And we don't have that. This king is going to govern with perfect righteousness. His word will bring the right kind of judgment, sharp judgment, actually able to make sure that things are right. And of course, this is looking forward to a time uh, when the Lord's going to return. When the Lord returns, the breath of his mouth is going to destroy the wicked, amen? Right now, I'm glad the breath of his mouth is not destroying the wicked. I'm glad that people have an opportunity, even tonight, to repent of their sin and to turn. But there's gonna be a day when the age of grace closes, and the wrath of the Lamb is going to be poured out when, when Revelation 19 is going to be a reality. And, and so people looking at this passage might well look at it from that standpoint. It's like the Messiah was spoken of as having perfect righteousness and perfect judgment, perfect ability to know when to punish wickedness and wrong. And so when Jesus comes again, which is going to be after a terrible time that, that he described in his own discourse in Matthew 24 as, as the beginning of those birth pangs would be wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences. So maybe this is one of those things that leads us to that time. Perhaps we are in that era of time when God is speaking to the world saying, look, I, I've been gracious and I've been kind and I've allowed an awful lot of things to go by the wayside, but I want you to know something. I told the prophet Isaiah that one day this same Messiah would come with the sword of his mouth. Now, did Jesus come the first time with that sword? He did not, amen? He came as a lamb to the slaughter. He came to give his life a ransom. He came to give his life so we could have life. But when he comes again, so this is obviously speaking of the second coming of the Lord. When he comes again, he's coming in perfect righteousness to deal with sin. That's why when Christians read Revelation chapter 6 to, to really 19, we can, we can have hope because he saved us from that wrath, but we also ought to be stimulated because there are people that don't know Jesus that are going to go through that wrath. They're going to go through that time when it, it, Jesus is not messing around. He's saying, look, a sharp two-edged sword's coming out of my mouth. And if God, by divine fiat, could speak the universe into existence... Don't you think that if he were to speak to, to remove evil from our world, it would happen pretty quickly? That he wouldn't be playing? And so as you read this passage of Scripture, as you look at who this one is that's being described, the, the Antichrist and his military force are going to come against Jesus in the last days, but they aren't going to stand a chance. They're going to gather together in the Valley of Megiddo, in the, in the Jezreel, on those plains. They're going to go all the way to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, just outside of the city of Jerusalem. They're going to gather against the king, but 
The king who is righteous described here is going to see through every single vain plan they have and they are going to be obliterated by the word of his mouth. He's just simply going to say, be gone and they're gone. That's why I want to be in Christ. That's why I want to, that's why I want to stay in Christ. That's why I want to live in Christ. That's why I want to abide in him. Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? I don't have to worry about these things. When I'm found in Christ, I'm good. Isaiah said so, and Paul said so. 700 years later. The righteousness shall be the gird of his loins or the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness will rein him in. Now it describes some conditions once the Messiah comes. And so Isaiah's skipping over, in essence, what we would call the tribulation. He's blowing past it, if you will. There's going to be this incredible battle that happens. There's going to be seven years of turmoil, beginning with three and a half years of peace, and then three and a half years of the worst wars that the world has ever seen. That time is still yet future. And now Isaiah sees past the coming of the king with the word of the Lord piercing through man's sin by the word of his mouth. And it gives us the condition of the millennial kingdom. Notice verse six. And I love this passage of scripture. I don't know how, how many of you are animal lovers in here. Good. And the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Anybody ever seen that happen? I haven't. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Right now, the leopard shall eat the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. Parents, if you're here tonight, how many of you would take your children, give them a leopard and a lion, and tell them to go play with the goats? That's like saying, you know, you don't love your kids anymore and you just want to see them gone. Because chances are they are going to be in the mix of the food. It's not going to happen. Why? Because the world is under the sway of the wicked one. The world resides in sin. Paul, the apostle, said, this world is groaning for that final deliverance. And so the world is, is not in this place, but Isaiah's leaped over this judgment that's going to come on the earth, the rod of his mouth that would come, on, come out and, and take care of all the injustice. And the cow shall... And the bear shall graze, and their young ones and their little ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. In other words, the curse that came with Adam's disobedience is finally going to be lifted. Remember, the, the world was cursed with thorns and thistles. Amen? It was also cursed with animals no longer getting along. Because when Adam and Eve walked in the garden, there were no carnivores. They had vegan lions, and the vegan lions and the vegan leopards got together, and they had kale chips. I, I don't know what they ate, but I know they didn't eat each other. Why? Because there was no death until Adam sinned. Death came into this world through sin. That's the result of sin. So there's only reason that anyone dies, the only reason that there is death, the only reason that there's violence that leads unto murder has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with man's sin. 
So we can't hang death and violence and those things on mankind, man or on God. We, we have to hang that on ourselves, on mankind, excuse me. And so when we look at the world, we're not seeing the world as God intended it. We're seeing the messed up, jacked up world that was created when Adam fell. The animals weren't at war with one another. They're now at war with one another. And so when you go out and look at the world, that's why people get so messed up when they go out and look at, the, at what we call the animal kingdom or the natural world. They look at it, it's like, well, of course the, the orangutan should get along with everyone. And, and of course the gorillas, you know, they, when we blow kisses to them, they blow them back. Yes, and they'll also tear your arms off. Make no mistake about it. They, they may look like and, and have some motions like you and be able to have kind of semi-opposing thumbs, those types of things, but they don't really. That's because they're fallen just like we're fallen. The whole creation is fallen. And so as much as it looks like if we would just save the creation, we could save the world, that simply isn't true. Because God said so. The world is under that curse. But when Jesus comes again, deals with sin, that's why he's coming back, is to deal with sin. So when he deals with sin, deals a death blow to sin, and there is no more sin, that's when these conditions can come about. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play in the cobra's hole. That is not your ideal parenting skill. The wean child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Now, I happen to be one of those people who put his hands in viper's dens when I was younger. Matter of fact, when I was older, I still put my hands in viper's dens. Matter of fact, I like to handle poisonous snakes. Don't ask my son, he'll tell you all about it. We, we used to go and catch rattlesnakes and all those kind of things. And I was like, look, check this out. Watch, I can squirt the venom. You know, it's like I'm dumb, okay? They shall not hurt nor destroy in all of my holy mountain. Now, I don't care how nice you are to the animal kingdom, Bad things still happen if you think that you have domesticated currently a wild animal. We've watched panda bears do horrific things. They look cuddly. They look, of course, that's Kung Fu Panda. No, that's a wild animal that, given a chance, will rip you to shreds. No, they look nice. They look happy. They got a smiley face. Koala bears will rip into you. Yes, they're cuddling. You see firefighters carrying them around, but they won't stay that way. Why? Because they're still part of the curse. They're, they're animals that have the curse is on them. But there'll come a time when they'll not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. You see, when the Lord reverses the curse, then these things will go away. And it will be reversed to the, to the extent that the, just as the waters cover the sea. Can I tell you this is exactly what you're praying for when you pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? It's one of the component parts. The curse is man's doing. When God's kingdom comes, it's going to reverse completely the curse. Smog's going to go away. Anybody looking forward to that day? Amen. And by the way, and, and I hate to admit this, I, but I, I got to be square with you. We're all going to be vegetarian. Now, I happen to believe there's going to be bacon trees. 
There's going to be steak bushes. Um, now, this is, I, I can't give you a Bible verse for this. I just know Jesus loves me, and he would not deprive me a ribeye, even if it has to be grown on a plant, okay? There's going to be no more death, no more dying, you know? So, so we're not going to eat animals anymore. And by the way, I think that's a really good thing. As long as I get bacon, mostly. And in that day, verse 10, there shall be a root of Jesse who will stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. You remember when Jesus finally revealed himself to the Jewish people? Did they accept him? They did not. The Jewish people rejected Messiah the first time. They didn't want that kind of king and that kind of kingdom. And so now we get into the restoration of the Jewish people and what's going to happen to them. Because right now, blindness in part rests on them. The Apostle Paul was clear on this in Romans chapter 11. He said that it would be that way until the fullness of the times of the Gentiles was complete. And so as you, as you look at this passage that remains, the remaining part of chapter 11 here in, in the book of Isaiah, God is now going to begin to bring to fruition that which he wanted to have happen in the first place. Just like he wanted the creation to be what he created, so he wanted the Jewish people to have the relationship that he desired from the get-go. God wanted the Jewish people to recognize the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords in his first coming. They didn't do that. The prophet Zechariah says for certain when he comes again, they will know that he's Messiah. They'll understand that completely and we'll get more into this next time. There still remains a future for the Jewish people and he's going to gather them together for a second time and it shall come to pass in that day, and there's that phrase, underline it, mark it, some 108 times you'll find that in the Bible. Mostly in the Old Testament, a couple in the New. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. And again, this is so important, church, that you do not confuse this with us, with the church. God has a plan for the Jewish people. God has a plan for national Israel. God has a plan. They are different. They are not, we are not the same. The Jewish people will come to faith in Christ. They'll believe in the same Jesus as we do. But God made a covenant with Abraham that one day all of the nations of the earth would be blessed, including them through him, through Abraham. And up to this point in time, largely the Jewish people, certainly some have, one by one, groups have, small churches exist, but Jewish people are still largely Jewish, and for the most part, they actually are non-religious, not so much irreligious, just non-religious. Very often, they simply don't practice anything. They're, they're secular for the most part. And yet the Bible says it will come to pass in that day that the Lord will set again his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people who were left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, 
and Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the islands of the sea. And so just as God is already doing and began to really do in earnest, when the nation of Israel was reestablished again in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, albeit not all of it described in the Bible, uh, the Jewish people are back in the land. That began May 14th in 1948 with a declaration that the nation Israel had the right to exist. The following morning, they were attacked by every single Arab nation that surrounded them. But God is one day going to gather the rest of the Jewish people. And for most of you, you don't realize this probably, but there are almost as many Jewish people in the United States of America as there are in Israel. There are additionally millions that live in Europe. The Jewish people are still scattered all over the globe. And in fact, if you're in the land, even in the land, you're now divided as Jewish people because you have these places that, that we call through UN mandates, the West Bank, through the Oslo Peace Accords, the Gaza Strip. We, we still have these, these places that inside of the boundaries of national Israel, you still have non-Jewish people that primarily occupy those areas and the Jewish people are kept out of them. But not so when Jesus comes again. Verse 12, he'll set up a banner to the nation and assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. I can tell you that hasn't happened yet. And in fact, the Jewish people were nearly exterminated. There was a point in time when there were perhaps less than 2 million Jews left on the entire earth directly after the Second World War, after the Holocaust. And so God is going to one day in the process of gathering together again the Jewish people to bring them back into the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the very thing that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24. He's referring back. He's actually giving us a window back to the prophecy of Isaiah. And it says there in verse 29 of Matthew 24, Jesus speaking, and immediately after the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week that we covered in Daniel chapter 9, of those days the sun shall be darkened, the moon will not give her light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then there shall appear a sign of the Son of Man, Daniel's term for Messiah, in heaven. And the tribes of the earth shall mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send his angels, check this out, with the great sound of the trumpet. And he'll gather together from his elect from the four corners of the earth. What did Isaiah say? In the last days the day of the Lord, that one day the same Messiah that's being described in Isaiah 11 would gather together the elect from the four, who are not the elect of the church, because in this passage Jesus is speaking of, the elect of the church is still with Jesus in heaven. That's why I do not believe in a post-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation event for the church at all from the four corners of the earth, from the winds, from one end of heaven to the other. He's going to bring together the Jewish elect from the earth and he's going to bring together the elect of heaven. That would be us, together. 
Why? Because the Bible says he's going to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives. He's going to return physically to this earth. And so when people think these things, when they, they believe that you know, God doesn't have a plan for Israel, you can refer them back to this chapter and say, well, what do you do with this? The prophet Isaiah said that one day in the last days, in that day, that the one that the Jews believed would be Messiah would do exactly what Jesus said he was going to do when he comes back again. I'm pretty sure those are one and the same. Same event. It's referring to national Israel. Isaiah chapter 27, we'll get to that in a few weeks. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river, the stream of Egypt, and gather them by one, you children of Israel. And it'll come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. Again, the very same thing that Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, that he's going to gather them together to bring together the Jewish people one final time. That's why, you know, look, let's be honest. We all deserve to go through the tribulation, amen? I do. Maybe you don't. I do. I deserve to go through the tribulation. But I'm so glad that the Apostle Paul said we're not going to. And that's why he says there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, for God didn't appoint us to wrath. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on all of mankind for sin, if we've been delivered from the wrath of God, we've been brought into a grace relationship with God, it would be not like him to actually punish us for that which he has saved us from, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, that we should live together with him. Amen? And, and so there's obviously a plan in the last days for national Israel. In other words, Israel will finally be at peace. Amen? Also, the envy of Ephraim, verse 13, shall depart. Now, there was a very large, and notice it says Ephraim, doesn't say Israel. This is one and the same. Ephraim was actually the tribe that controlled the northern territories, but they were collectively known as Israel. Ten tribes that lived in the north. In the south, you had Judah. And, and so here, here is this picture. Also, the envy of Ephraim shall, be, shall depart. Why? Because Judah survived. Ephraim was wiped out. They were taken captive. They were made slaves by Assyria. Furthermore, when Babylon came along, they also imprisoned the remnant. And so this is a picture of the very last days, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Now, right now, the adversaries of Judah surround Israel. They, they launch rockets almost on a daily basis from Gaza. In the north, if you travel near the border, sometimes just for fun, we go right to the border of Lebanon and kind of see if there's any tanks there. Missile sites. The adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, but Judah shall not harass Ephraim. That jealousy, that envy that existed between the northern and the southern kingdom will finally be wiped out. Now, I want you to think about these things. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines towards the west. Anybody know where the Philistines used to be headquartered? They were in Gath. 
Gath is modern-day Gaza. Do you know who lives in Gaza today? The sworn enemies of Israel. And so as you look at this, Isaiah's telling us what the conditions would be like today. He's saying, look, they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines towards the west. Which way is towards the west? That's where the Philistines lived, and that is Gaza today. And they shall plunder the people of the east. Who controls the Temple Mount today? Jordan, where do they reside? To the east, in what area? They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab. That is the land of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And so ultimately, these things are going to be reversed. The people of Ammon shall obey them. Right now, the people of Ammon do not obey the Jewish people. The king of Jordan actually exercises control to this day through the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem over the Temple Mount itself. And in fact, the Jordanians control much of what we call East Jerusalem. And so this, this aching for peace that the world still has and the Jewish people still have, and to a large degree, so do the Jordanians, and so do those that we call the Palestinians, so do those that are in the south that are Egyptians, and those that are in the north that used to be called Phoenicians that are now called Lebanese, and those that used to be called Assyrians that are now just called Syrians people that live in Turkey, all of this area that is still in major conflict. If you've been tracking what's going on to the north of Israel, it's in constant turmoil. You have this unbelievable ruler, Bashar al-Assad, that destroys his own people. Right now, every few months, you hear of a missile strike somewhere in Syria. Why? because troops are moved right next to the Syrian border. When we travel there, we've been there twice when we've watched Israeli airstrikes, the smoke rising up in the distance. That's how close war is every day to the Jewish people. But the promise of Isaiah is one day those things would be done away with. They would never again appear on the Jewish people's horizon. And so whether it's the Gaza Strip or the West Bank or the Jordan or Jordan River Valley, only half of it really belongs to Israel. On the eastern bank of the Jordan River, that's, that's actually Jordan. In fact, the name Jordan means, means out of Dan. It comes from the north out of Dan and flows south uh, down to the Dead Sea and ultimately uh, down, used to flow down to the, the port of Elat. They'll lay their hand on Moab. Jordan is modern Moab. In verse 15, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. Most of you know that there's a thing called the anvil of the sun, and there are two tongues. One of them has the Suez Canal in it. That's the one that's furthest west. That's the one that's closer to Cairo. And then on the other side, there's another tongue. And in between them, this thing that... Uh, as you could go back to the First World War, um, probably most of you have seen Lawrence of Arabia. You remember as that final attack is coming, as Lawrence is gathering this massive cavalry to come and attack these guns, it's because those guns were aimed at the port and they weren't aimed behind them. And so they were able to con come through this area that was desert. Um, that right now is Egypt. You travel there, you, you can be literally in the port city of Yalat in Israel and walk a few hundred yards and be in Egypt. 
Right now, that's a very tense part of the world. But one day, that war that's been ongoing, really since the time of, before the time of, actually of, of Isaiah the prophet. And it says that he'll make his mighty wind, will shake his fist over the river. That would be the river is almost always the Euphrates, either Euphrates or the Tigris. So both are in Iraq, modern day uh, area that we would call Babylon, actually. And strike the seven streams. If you look at the tributaries that fill uh, the Euphrates River, it's the Tigris comes in and then these seven other rivers and make men cross over on dry land and there will be a highway for his remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria for as it was for Israel in that day that he came up from the land of Egypt. And so when Jesus returns, there's finally going to be peace in the Middle East. That certainly isn't gonna happen today. It's not gonna happen tomorrow. But the world is aching for it. Israel's aching for it. And so we can pray for the peace of Jerusalem because the only one that can bring the peace to the Middle East is the Prince of Peace. Amen? Let's pray. I'm going to have the worship team come back out and I'm going to remind you that we're going to be taking our offering as you go back through the doors when you're on your way out. So if you're going to do that tonight, they'll just simply be back there with buckets. You can just drop whatever the Lord puts on your heart uh, in those buckets and then we'll handle it instead of you handling tithe bags. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your promises. And so, Lord, as we, uh, as a nation, as a world, struggle with this virus that's called the coronavirus, we pray that we'd have the same peace uh, that the Prince of Peace brought to our hearts when we received him as our Lord. And so uh, give us that perfect peace as our minds are stayed on you. We thank you. You have a plan for national Israel, we pray that it would come to pass, that we would see it. And Lord, we, we pray uh, for those that are struggling and suffering right now from being laid off, Lord, not having a place to work, all the insane things that are going on in our country, those that have lost livelihoods, uh, lost their fortune in the stock market, Lord, those that are uh, going to be radically affected by this, by this virus, we just pray, please, in Jesus' name, bring healing, bring a solution to the problem. Pray that you give the doctors and nurses, the immunologists and pathologists that are working on a cure, uh, give them great wisdom and would that cure come quickly. But for us, just keep our minds stayed on you and keep us at perfect peace because of it. Bless us, Lord, as we leave this place, receive from us our tithes and offerings, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.